0: This episode was recorded on January 31st, 2024. It's bloodier every single day. Every day brings about new attacks, new levels of loss, unspeakable scenes, inexplicable amounts of death. The death toll is in the tens of thousands and rising. Now, life in Gaza got even worse, and the international community has become a major player. In one week, we've seen the largest humanitarian entity operating in Gaza, described by many as a lifeline, taking a devastating hit as nine countries either withdrew or planned on withdrawing further funding from UNRWA. Why? The reasoning these countries gave is that Israel accused 12 members of the vital agency of being involved in the October 7 Hamas attack. million Palestinians rely on UNRWA assistance, and they are the ones most impacted by these decisions. Outside of Gaza, three U.S. soldiers in a small military base on the Jordan-Syrian borders were killed in a drone strike that President Biden blamed on Iran-backed militants. A day later, the Syrian Defense Ministry said several Iranian advisors were killed in Damascus by Israel. It gets even more complicated. Last week, the International Court of Justice made an historic ruling that proved highly controversial. After two days of testimony and hopes for a ceasefire from many, the UN's highest court ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide against Rezans and allow vital aid into the Palestinian enclave. Many criticized the seemingly harsh ruling for stopping short of calling for an all-out end to the war in Gaza or even describing Israel's actions there as a genocide. All of these events combined factor into the highly sensitive matter of reaching a ceasefire in Gaza or even just a humanitarian truce. How do all these issues tie in together? What are their implications and is there a truce on the horizon or an even further suspension of aid to Palestinians who are literally dying of hunger? This is Beyond the Headlines and I'm your host Nadal Tahir. In this episode, we'll be looking at the ICJ ruling, the meaning behind the drone attacks on U.S. troops, and how involved Iran has become in all of this. First, we're looking at the UNRWA. This international agency has been struggling even before the conflict broke out. Established in 1949, UNRWA's main goal was to help refugees of the 1948 war. It provided education, health, and aid services to Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinian refugees in other countries. But since the start of the war, UN schools have turned into overcrowded and under-equipped displacement centers, and UNRWA has repeatedly flagged that it cannot operate as its services have become overwhelmed, underfunded, and overstretched. This is Ahmed Bayram from the Norwegian Refugee Council on how crucial UNRWA is underground in Gaza.
1: The role that UNRWA plays providing aid to Palestinians in Gaza and indeed in the region, in Lebanon, Jordan and Syria, is just simply critical. Uh, uh, UNRISE is the largest aid provider for Palestinians. As everybody knows, no one comes even close. It provides education, protection, um, shelter support, uh, medical support for, for Palestinians and and. Its operations, aid operations, are quite vital for the survival of these communities, Palestinian communities in occupied territory and in the region. And you, you're talking about millions who rely on uh, UNRWA services on, a, on almost on a, a daily basis. So now that the announcement that funding has been cut with immediate effect from many countries, some are there, you know, are the largest providers of aid to UNRWA, is going to create a massive black hole in the aid system. And it's no exaggeration to say that the humanitarian system might collapse with the absence of the key player that coordinates that you know provides this substantial aid to to millions of people at a time where people don't know whether they are going to survive the next morning or whether they're going to have anything to, to feed uh, their children.
0: UNRWA has lost 150 of its staff in Gaza as a result of Israel's military operations. That's the highest death toll for the UN in any conflict around the world ever. And now, the budget cuts will add up to more than $700 million, nearly half the agency's annual budget. Ahmed explains why the UNRWA is vital for NGOs like the Norwegian Refugee Council and others operating in Gaza.
1: Suspension of aid to UNRWA doesn't just mean suspension of funding, as bad as that is in and of itself as a a decision as a collective decision it's almost like these countries have united to collectively punish the entire population of Gaza and indeed beyond Gaza but that's not just the, the the problem with what happened the other problem is that you are as as you know as the most powerful countries come together to announce one after the other that they are suspending this funding they are Unintentionally, probably, decimating an entire aid system in in Gaza, which relies in its fabric. And amidst all the chaos and carnage in Gaza, we rely on on UNRWA for for data, for access, for navigating our way around, to even access these shelters. It's just, just extraordinary that... We are suddenly waking up to a world where, you know, cutting off aid from a starving population—a decision taking by from a sheer perspective of of politics, politics being put in ahead of humanity here—and of course, we have said that investigations need to happen, but you know, UNRWA has announced the same thing, but that cannot be a reason, a justification to deprive two million people at the brink of starvation, or already starving indeed, and also the many other millions of Palestinians in the region, for the action of, of, of a few individuals.
0: The international community has tried several times to allow for a better accessibility of humanitarian assistance in Gaza. And now, a court order from the ICJ is asking Israel to allow vital aid. To know more, I've spoken to Suniva Rose, the National's EU correspondent who attended the ICJ hearings. So, Suniva, what does the ICJ ruling mean for Israel and the international community?
2: So the ruling is important because it said that the claims made by South Africa about genocide in Gaza were plausible. And it's the word plausible that's important here. It means that the ICJ is not throwing out the case, which is what Israel wanted. And the ICJ is acknowledging there is a need to look into South Africa's claims, even though this might take years and the court might end up refuting the claim of genocide. In the meantime, the court issued provisional orders asking Israel basically to make sure that no measures that pertain to genocide take place in Gaza. That includes killing Palestinians, as well as stopping senior Israeli politicians from calling for the killing of Palestinian civilians. And this has happened in the past months. When I was in The Hague on Friday, there were several um, government officials from South Africa who had come uh, all the way to the Netherlands, and they argued that a ceasefire will have to be enforced in Gaza to respect the measures requested by the ICJ, even though that wasn't literally said or asked for by the ICJ. I spoke to Zana Dangor, the Director General of the Foreign Affairs Ministry of South Africa, and he told me that the court had put an end to, I quote, the institutionalized impunity that Israel has enjoyed for 75 years. But the fact that the ICJ did not call for a ceasefire was also presented as a win by, the, by Israeli supporters because they argue that basically means the war can continue. Most importantly, just the fact that South Africa, which has long supported the Palestinian cause due to its history of apartheid, brought this case against Israel at the ICJ is widely viewed as a moral victory for the global South against the West, which has been accused of double standards and of unconditional support to Israel despite the high level of suffering in Gaza.
0: Does the ICJ have any executive authority, or does the international community have any sort of authority to make sure that these provisional rulings are carried out. Um, How can basically the ICJ's measures be enforced?
2: Technically, ICJ rulings are not subject to appeal and they are binding. But Really, there's no way of enforcing its orders. There is nothing much the international community can do except put pressure on Israel. And ultimately, it's up to Israel to decide what it wants to do in Gaza. The issue is that so far, pressure has not worked so well, even from Israel's most important ally, the United States. And there's been let, little Western support for South Africa's claims of genocide at the ICJ. There were calls by a senior government official in Belgium to support the South African lawsuit, and the government is accepted. Examining that request, but it has given no answer. And you have to bear in mind that Belgium is viewed as one of the most pro-Palestine countries in Europe. For the people on the ground in Gaza, the ICJ's ruling will probably have, unfortunately, very little impact. Israel has said that the genocide claims are outrageous, that it wants to continue its war in Gaza as long as it is needed, and it wants to basically eradicate Hamas from Gaza. And it is up to Israel to decide when that is done. The Israeli leaders also claim they respect international humanitarian law, and one of their arguments is that they, they warn Palestinians in Gaza with leaflets before bombings. They also say Hamas uses civilians as human shields. However, human rights defenders say that Palestinian, Palestinians have simply nowhere to go to find shelter in Gaza today, and nowhere is safe.
0: So the last question is, I suppose, does this ruling have any impact on aid? I know we've seen what has been happening to UNRWA. What difference does the ICJ ruling make to the delivery and availability of aid inside Gaza, given also what is happening with UNRWA in the backdrop?
2: Yeah, that's an important question because there it was a request made by the ICJ that humanitarian access be ensured to Gaza. I mean, the problem is that in the end once again it's Israel that controls access to Gaza and humanitarian organizations have said that aid going into the enclave has been largely insufficient even lower than before October 7 and it looks like honestly the situation will worsen for reasons that are unrelated to the ICJ because shortly after its ruling on Friday Israel came up with some allegations against UNRWA that have had a devastating impact on the agency, which gives, you know, not only humanitarian support, also schools and medical care to Palestinians in Gaza, but across the region. And so basically, Israel accused 10 to 12, I believe, UNRWA employees of taking part in the October 7 attacks. This has triggered a suspension in aid from most of the agency's largest donors. And the UN, as well as some donors that haven't paused funding, like Norway, have said that this is that suspending aid to UNRWA is basically collective punishment against Palestinians in Gaza.
0: Also this week, we've seen more concerns about the israel Gaza conflict widening into a regional war, especially after a drone attack killed three U.S. soldiers at a remote base in Jordan. Israel-linked militias have claimed the attack, and President Biden vowed to respond. For more details, I spoke to the National's Washington Bureau Chief, Thomas Watkins. Can you give us some background on this U.S. base in Jordan and how significant this attack is?
3: Yeah, thanks, Nada. Thanks for hosting. So the attack on the base in Jordan is is very significant. It marks the first time since the start of the Israel Gaza war when Iran backed attacks on U.S. forces really picked up. That we've seen fatalities. We've seen over 160 Iran backed strikes on U.S. bases and forces in Iraq and Syria. So this is significant. It's it's crossed the border and it's actually gone into Jordan and it's hit uh, Tower 22, which is a not insignificant base for US forces used primarily uh, in the ongoing uh, anti-ISIS coalition, where there's, as you know, been troops stationed um, in primarily Iraq and Syria since uh, 2014 to help defeat ISIS in those two countries. But the yeah Tower 22 had a Supporting role and it still falls under the command of Operation Inherent Resolve, which is based out of Baghdad. So, yeah, we've had several instances where there's been minor injuries, predominantly TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, concussive injuries, if you like, from various strikes that have happened over the last several months. This is the first attack that's resulted in in deaths. There was a lot of troops that were sleeping in their barracks. They were still in bed during the early morning attack. And there's a lot of questions that the Pentagon still has to answer in terms of how this attack was so successful from the militants' point of view.
0: And what about claim of responsibility? Who has claimed responsibility for this attack? And how might the U.S.? actually retaliate. We know that President Joe Biden said he will retaliate. Um, what does that look like?
3: So the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which is an umbrella group um, for pro-Iran militias, has claimed responsibility for for Sunday morning's attack. Um, falling under that designation is uh, Kataib Hezbollah, uh, which is another armed group with very close ties to Iran. The US hasn't categorically come out and said that it was um, kh that did this uh at least as we're speaking today but um, fingers are definitely being pointed at that group and um that would seem to be the focus of the expected um upcoming retaliatory strike uh, led by the us uh, interestingly on tuesday uh, kh um said that they're going to stand down essentially they said they're not going to carry out any more attacks on us forces us bases the stated reason from them was they didn't want to embarrass the iraqi government because every time there's an attack within iraq that's that has huge implications for iraqi sovereignty and it undermines the government of prime minister al-sudani nonetheless the pentagon on tuesday sounded resolute when they said that there was going to be consequences and that action was coming What what the retaliatory strike actually will look like is, I think, still being assessed at the moment. Obviously, affecting the calculus is this waving of the white flag from KH. And President Biden here has a very tricky calculus to work through in terms of gauging the, the level of his response. He's trying to thread the needle here. He doesn't want to start a broader conflict, but some of the political pressures include A lot of Republicans who are very hawkish saying that there should be a much broader retaliation, including some senators, such as Lindsey Graham, who've said that the US should strike within Iran itself, which obviously would be escalating to a whole new and unprecedented level.
0: What do you make of these strikes on Damascus then, especially with Iran's handling of the whole matter and Syria as well? At some point, saying that Iranian quote unquote advisors were killed and then basically backtracking?
3: Well, I think it's very interesting that there was an initial claim that Iranian advisors were killed, and then that claim was backtracked on. There is, obviously, after these strikes, tremendous amount of confusion on the ground. Reports do change. So one might read into the claim and counterclaim, whatever they wish to. I would note that this is yet another example of how the war Uh, in gaza has spread and continues to spread far beyond the gaza strip the the us here as the biden administration is keen to say that the war is being contained but every day we see new strikes and this is another instance of something happening in damascus we've also seen strikes in yemen iraq syria and now jordan so it seems that like whenever Whenever the U.S. tries to plug one hole, another, the dam breaks a little bit more and another attack happens elsewhere. So, you know, I I don't know very much about this, the strike that just happened in Damascus today. It's certainly going to be an interesting one to, to see how that evolves. And we've obviously seen other strikes in Damascus that have been blamed on Israel, which doesn't typically comment on these.
0: As we just heard from Thomas, this is a rapidly developing situation, which we will continue to follow at The National. That's all for today. This episode was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison, and I'm your host, Nadal Tahir. Please remember to follow and subscribe to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out.